All right, it's good to have you with us today. We look forward to our time together. And as we go into this chapter, I want to say a couple of things that I think are important. Number one, this is probably the most important chapter regarding prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so it, it is absolutely packed with information. The second thing I want to say to you is uh, that uh, it is the revelation of the Antichrist that comes out of the fourth kingdom in the latter days. And then the third thing that I would say to you is uh, that uh, there are a number of background issues that I feel I need to cover so that when we actually go through the text, we'll have a better understanding about what we're reading. And so uh, with all of that said, hopefully we'll get through the chapter. That's been my goal to go through a chapter at a time, but I don't want to steal from the information that is available. So we'll see how it goes this morning and uh, pray that the Lord will speak to each of our hearts as we look at the text. Now I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to be reminded of the fact that when we look at the book of Daniel, there are three major divisions. I keep saying that. As you study a book, you should be able to think in terms of the major movements of thought. The first one is found in chapter 1. It's God's sovereignty over the deportation of Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Uh, Chapter 2 through chapter 7 has to do with God's sovereignty over the Gentile worlds in particular. And I remind you of the fact that chapter 2 deals with the four kingdoms. And chapter 7 deals with the four kingdoms. Others deal with various parts of it, but both of those chapters emphasize all four of the human kingdoms. Now, when we come to chapter 7, I want you to follow along as I read, and I want you to just see what uh, we have in store for ourselves. Notice Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and uh, related the following summary of it. Now, I want to stop right there and say that many of us, uh, I think, probably have had diaries during our lifetime. I had a diary that I wrote while I was in Vietnam, and it tells all kinds of things that uh, that I experienced. My wife and, and none of my family has ever seen that, and I doubt that I'll go to my grave without destroying it. I just It's that personal to me. But the diary, and that's what Daniel has here. He's a diary of this uh, particular event. And notice he says in verse 2, uh, Daniel said, now he's going to give us the summary, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, Four winds of heaven were stirring up the the great sea. Now, we want to talk about those four winds, which are actually God working in the four different kingdoms, I take it. And I want us to understand that as we look at this chapter, there are three major movements of thought. The first one is found in chapter 7, verse 1. It's the occasion of the dream. And I want you to note, secondly, that beginning in verse 2, 
all the way through verse 10, uh, 14, it's the summary of this dream. And then in verse 15 to the end of the chapter, it's the interpretation. Now, let's, let's go back and look at each, one's, each one of those major uh, movements. First one, the occasion. Notice, the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. Now, note that. When we're in chapter 5, the assassination of Belshazzar occurs. He's introduced to us all the way back there. And that is in a time frame of 539, somewhere in there. History tells us he was, he was assassinated. Well, this is 14 years earlier. Notice, it's in the first year of Belshazzar, okay? And chapter 7 is prior to chapter 5 and 6, and so is chapter 8. If you'll go over there just for a second, you'll note that it says there is a, a time frame given to us in chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king. So both of these chapters are visions or dreams, revelation that God gave to Daniel before uh, the end of uh, Belshazzar's uh, uh, reign as the king. Just keep that in mind. And so when we're in chapter 6, and I pointed this out to you last week, in chapter 6, if you'll go back there just a second, you'll notice that it says uh, in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document, no, 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 I want to go back a little bit further. Uh, oh, there it is in verse 10. I was right. Now when Daniel knew what his house uh, he entered his house and he went up on the roof where he would pray. And then it says the window was open toward Jerusalem and he was kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks at, uh, as he had done before. Then verse 11, then these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and supplication. Supplication there is a particular word that emphasizes supplication from God for mercy. And I pointed out to you then, I'll remind you of it again, Daniel has already had the information of chapter 7 and chapter 8 that deal with the Antichrist and all of that. And so when he is praying in chapter 6, he has all that information in his background, and he is saying, Lord, have mercy on your people. Got it? Now, we go back to chapter 7, and we note that the first year of Belshazzar is when this occurred, and it's 14 years before his assassination. Then the summarization comes in verse 2, uh, and uh, all the way through verse 14. Now, before we actually go into the vision and the revelation that we're going to see of Antichrist, there are certain words that are repetitive in this chapter that are very important for us to understand. They have uh, implications in them so that when we read the book, we'll understand, or read the chapter, we'll understand. And I'm going to just give them to you and talk to you about them 
a little bit. I've written them down. I've got notes in my Bible that will help us to remind me of these things. The first one is the word crush. You see the word crush in here? It is found in verse 7, verse 19, verse 21, verse 23. Crush. And the idea, King James says it very well. It says to break into pieces. Here in my translation, it just says crush. And so the thing that we need to understand is this chapter, as it introduces us to the fourth kingdom in a different way, and the Antichrist, the little horn that comes out of that fourth kingdom, he is one that is going to crush and break into pieces. And so we need to understand that. The other thing that I want to say to you is that when we go back, and I want you to do that just for a second, go back to chapter 2, hold your place in chapter 7, go back to chapter 2, and I want you to notice that you have the word crushed there as well. Now, the last time we talked about this chapter, I emphasized the fact that uh, Antichrist, uh, or the king of the fourth kingdom, is going to crush people. Well, that's found in verse 40. He does some crushing. But the rest of the crushings in this chapter are the crushings that God does in this same time frame. He's going to, he has this stone that is cut out without hands, which is an emblem, a symbol of the fifth kingdom, God's kingdom, and he is going to crush the other kingdoms. Everybody with me? God's going to do the crushing. Now, in chapter 2, you have that one reference uh, to the crushing done out of the fourth kingdom. But when you come to chapter 7, all the crushes that occur, all the breaking into pieces that come are from the fourth kingdom and its king in particular. Everybody with me? So crushing is a very important word in this chapter. A second one is the word different. In other words, this fourth kingdom is totally different from the other kingdoms. Notice, it's mentioned in verse 7. It's mentioned again in verse 19. It's mentioned again in verse 23. And it's mentioned again in verse 24. Now, that's important, or he wouldn't be repeating it for us. This kingdom is very different from the other human kingdoms because it becomes infected by God and the Antichrist. So it's different. But there are other things. Number one, it talks about the crushing. Go back to that again. And the crushing is done by the king of the fourth kingdom. And it, that is a word that emphasizes a major aggressiveness on the part of this king and the kingdom. He's very hostile toward other people. It is a crushing that emphasizes the fourth kingdom is much more evil and much more intolerant and much more hostile than the other kingdoms were when they took over and gained their empires. Everybody with me? Now, that's how he's different. But another way he's different, uh, this uh, kingdom is different, is in the fact that this kingdom is universal. 
You remember the other kingdoms. Babylon was rather small. And then you had Medo-Persia. And then you had Greece. Each one gets a little bit wider in its geographical control. But when you come to uh, the fourth kingdom, as it is presented to us in chapter 7, it is a universal kingdom. For example, look at chapter 7 and verse 23. Thus he said, this is an angel talking to Daniel, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom on the earth and will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth. You see it? The whole earth. Now, with that in mind, hold your place. And we're going to do that a lot this morning, do this a lot. I want you to go uh, to Revelation and I want you to look with me at verse or, or chapter 13. Hold your place in Daniel 2 and go with me to Revelation chapter 13. And in particular, we're going to look at verse 7. Now, I could just tell you these things and just tell you here's the reference. But it's important with that we see with our eye gate and we hear with our ear gate. We're able to comprehend and retain better when we do that. The other thing I want to say to you, child of God, it is easy for us to say the Bible says. But you need to know in your computer where it says it. Amen? So I emphasize that uh, for you. Now notice in uh, Revelation chapter 13, and I want you to look with me at uh, uh, verse 7. It's talking about this Antichrist now. And I want you to notice, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority, notice, over every tribe, people, tongue, nation was given to him. That emphasizes the universality of this kingdom, the fourth kingdom, as it's being revealed to us here in chapter 7. Another thing that it says to us, not only is it different in the fact that it is a, a very aggressive kingdom, and secondly, that it is a universal kingdom, but the third thing I want you to see is it, that it is a satanic kingdom. Notice verse 25. And we'll come back to this verse. It's a powerful verse. gives us a lot of information. But notice what he says. And he that is the little horn that comes out of the fourth kingdom, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will, uh, he will intend to make alterations in the times, in the law, and uh, they, will given unto his, they will be given unto his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the idea is, for three and a half years, this guy is in absolute control and does whatever he wants. Point. This time frame, these time descriptions, are repeated throughout Revelation and Daniel, indicating this is an end-time event, and it's something Antichrist does. So chapter 7 is telling us this kingdom is different. How? 
It's very aggressive. It crushes. It is universal. <laughs> and the third thing is, it is influenced and controlled by Antichrist himself. Now, we'll see all of that as we go along, but I want you to notice it for uh, now just as an introduction. The third thing that you see in chapter 7, a word that is repeated, is that there is a little horn. Then there's the pronouns that are used, but the little horn is introduced to us in verse 8, in verse 11, verse 20, verse 21, verse 24, verse 25, verse 26. Folks, that is a major emphasis here. It is a kingdom that produces the Antichrist. Now, with those things in mind, let's go back and just start working our way through the chapter. Remember, it's about the four kingdoms. Notice it says in verse 2, Daniel's now going to give us a summary. He's made a diary. He wrote it down. Now he's going to tell us about it. Daniel said in his diary, I was looking in my vision by night, <coughs> and behold, the four winds of her uh, heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea, child of God, is not the Mediterranean Sea. If you go and look at the literature, they argue, is this the Mediterranean Sea or this is the Atlantic Ocean? What is this body of water? Well, it's the sea of humanity. If you look at verse 17, it says, uh, And these great beasts, which are four in number, or four kings who will arise from the earth. So the sea here is the sea of humanity. Everybody with me? Now, notice verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea. Uh, different from one another. They are different in their characterization. Now, it mentions the first one. By the way, these, ki these kingdoms are mentioned as kingdoms here in the early part of the chapter. Later part of the chapter, it's more about the kings that rule those kingdoms. And here, you're going to see that it emphasizes that as it mentions there are four different kingdoms, it is going to mention the characterization by the leader. Look at it. And the four be uh, beasts are coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. The lion is royalty, majesty. And uh, you remember uh, that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, way back, was told when he saw that statue that represented the four different kingdoms in chapter 2. Thou art the head of gold. Okay? That was Nebuchadnezzar. And in the Babylonian kingdom, and by the way, a little bit later when uh, Saddam Hussein, I think his name was, was trying to rebuild uh, uh, the Babylonian kingdom, he did the same thing. Outside of the royal palace are these lions with eagle wings. Both of them represent majesty the king of beast and the, the king, if you please, of the, the foul kingdom. Notice what he says. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. 
And they kept looking. Uh, I kept looking at the wings, uh, and they were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Remember what we read about uh, Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride? He had this animal mentality, and then it was over. He was able to stand up and be a man again. Well, there's a reference to him and his uh, arrogance. Now, verse 5. Behold another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. Now, the bear is, again, a very powerful animal. But as you look at the literature, most people draw the conclusion it was a very powerful kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, but it was not one that had the royalty and the majesty of uh, the Nebuchadnezzar kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. Thou art the head of gold. Everybody else is downhill. Okay? And so the bear is a representation of power, but not the majesty as found in uh, the first kingdom. And notice what it says. Resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between, between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Rise and devour me. By the way, the bear doesn't really, his major diet is not meat. You see the bears catching fish and things like that, polar bears. But when you think of bears around the world, they're more vegetarian. And, and, uh, but this one is supposed to gobble up these three ribs. And it's a representation, everybody seems to think, that when the Medio Persian kingdom came together, Media was in charge initially, but the Persian part of the kingdom <clears throat> became stronger and uh, took control as time went on. And that's what we see here. The bear rises up on one side, that's part of the kingdom, and he eats three of the ribs uh, of the other. And so we're talking about the Medo-Persian kingdom becoming uh, strong. And by the way, those ribs have been identified. The first rib was Libya, and the second one was Babylon, and then the third one was Egypt. They're the three ribs that are being described here in the bear kingdom, which is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Then number six, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, another kingdom, like a leopard. Now, here's the representation of the leadership again. And when you stop and think about the third kingdom, which is the Grecian kingdom class, I think all of us remember from our history that the first great king in the uh, Grecian kingdom was a man by the name of Alexander the Great. Remember that? And he is a swift general. He moves rapidly. He was like uh, Patton in World War II. Patton just moved. Uh, other, other generals were rather uh, stayed and reserved and slow and wanted to get prepared. Uh, Patton just wanted to move. And sometimes he got ahead of his supplies, as a matter of fact. And sometimes the general, by the name of Eisenhower, had to say, stop! Okay? But this Alexander the Great was like that. He just moved out. 
He had conquered the then known world by the time he was 30, history tells us. And he was complaining because there hadn't been any place else to conquer. You remember that from your history. Well, so he is called the leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. You remember in the third kingdom, the first king rises up, and then he is out of the picture, and his four generals take off, and they divide the Grecian kingdom into four parts. That's what we're having described to us here. But this was a swift-moving kingdom. See all this history kind of built into these verses? It's amazing what we have. Then notice, uh, when you get to uh, verse 7, we have a fir- the first mention of the fourth kingdom. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, and it had a large iron teeth. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to make an observation. We're being introduced to the fourth kingdom, but the fourth kingdom is primarily and not about the earthly historical kingdom. It's more about the return of this fourth kingdom in the end times under Antichrist. Everybody with me? Now, somewhere in, uh, in uh, these verses or in this verse and in many other places in prophecy, the prophets may be talking about a historical figure and then all of a sudden he starts saying things and you say, whoops, he's not talking about the same person anymore. Because this historical king is now a representation and coming out in a prophetic king at another period of time. So we sometimes, as interpreters of Scripture, have to make a decision. Okay, when do you cut it off? He's talking about the earthly kingdom, and then he's talking about the historical kingdom. Okay? I say, for my benefit... I understand and I'm comfortable with saying in verse 7, he is dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, and he had a large, he had large iron teeth. Slash. End of the description of the fourth kingdom as it stood in history. Now, people talk, and I want to say this to you, people talk about the revival of, of the Roman Empire. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just would like to say to you that as I look at this verse and I study these passages, I like to refer to as historic Rome and then prophetic Rome because it really is different. Uh, It's not a revival of the old. It's totally different. Okay? Uh, And it is a kingdom that uh, introduces us to Antichrist, which means there is a power there that you don't see in the other kingdoms. Everybody with me? Now, so I take verse 7, the first part, the A part of verse 7, and that has to do with historic Rome. Now, let me give you a little history. When you talk about the Roman Empire, historically, that all the history books talk about, you can kind of outline 
when it existed. For example, I'm, I've got some notes written down, so I'll just give them to you. Uh, that this kingdom started when it conquered Sicily. Sicily is in the, an island in the Mediterranean. It conquered it in 2041. Then, and that's B.C., before Christ. Then it conquered Spain. Then it conquered North Africa. It now has control of the Mediterranean area. Okay? And then it went all the way into southern Britain. So it is very much European. Uh, It is also, it, it conquered France. It conquered western Germany. That is, Germany west of the Rhine River, if you know a little bit about geography. And then there's Belgium. It was conquered. Switzerland was conquered. So the the uh, actual beginning of the kingdom starts all the way back in uh, 241 B.C. History tells us that it ended for all practical purpose purposes in 1453 A.D. It was a long-standing kingdom. And the last Roman king was killed when he was in battle with Muhammad II at the Battle of Constantinople. He was killed. So for all practical purposes, history would say that's the end of historic Rome. Everybody with me? Now, the latter part of the verse and the rest of the chapter is still talking about the Roman Empire, but it's talking projected into the future, the prophetic Rome. Everybody with me? Now, how do I know that this part of the kingdom is way in the future? Well, for one thing, it will tell us, we'll see this later, that there are ten kings. You remember all the way back in chapter 2, there were ten toes on the stature. Now it has ten horns or ten kings. Observation. History dictates to us. You know, the liberals think that the Grecian kingdom is the fourth kingdom because they, they do something like this. They'll say Babylon, Median, Persia, Greece. That's how they break it down. Well, even if you would want to do that, there's not a record of ten coherent, uh, concurrent uh, kings in Greece or in Rome. So that must mean that this Roman Empire is not talking about the historic Rome. It's talking about the prophetic Rome. Everybody with me? Now, a second thing that it says, when you get to chapter uh, 20, uh, chapter 7 and verse 25, Notice, go back there just for a second. Times, times, and a half a time. When we get to it, we're going to show you that is a reference primarily to something that happens under the Antichrist in Revelation. Okay? So this kingdom is in the future. The Antichrist hadn't come yet. We may think certain people were or are, but uh, when he gets here, people know. Okay? And we don't. 
And then there is the mention in chapter 9, another reason why we have to take this fourth kingdom as prophetic and in the future, in the end times, <clears throat> is because it talks about the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 7. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to hold your place here, and because of its significance, I want you to go with me to Matthew 24 and verse 14 and 15. Matthew. So we're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about the Lord Jesus and his ministry on earth, and he mentions something from Daniel. Notice verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world <clears throat> for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then you're to react. Point. Jesus is in his earthly ministry toward the end of it, and he's talking about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, and it hadn't happened yet. He says, when you see it, you're going to react. This is a prophetic Roman Empire. Everybody with me? Now, are you with me? You got it? You understand what we're saying? So we have, a, we have this prophetic uh, Roman Empire that we're being introduced to. Now, with that in mind, we go back to our chapter 7 and verse 7. And notice what this king does. It, uh, this kingdom does. It devours and it crushes, tramples down the remainder with its feet. And it was different, there's your word, from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Okay? Totally different kingdom has ten horns like the fourth kingdom in chapter 2 uh, in the statue that had ten toes. Now notice, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns are pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possesses eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Now, we have ten horns. And then all of a sudden, here comes horn number 11. And he pulls three of the original ten up by their roots. In other words, he conquers this kingdom. All right, then notice he is uttering great boast in verse 8. Now we're going to be introduced, class, to something that happens in prophetic literature with some degree of uh, frequency. And that is, it'll be talking about events that are going on on earth. And when we go to Revelation, we'll see a lot of it. Uh, it'll be talking about events that are going on on the earth and then Boom, all of a sudden, we're counterbolted into heaven. And this is what's happening in heaven while this is going on down here. Here is this little horn, and he's boasting and prideful 
Okay? Now, what's God doing in heaven in relation to that? Look at verse 9 and verse 10. God's reaction in heaven. Notice what it says. And I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, that's a, a term that describes God the Father, uh, took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure uh, wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning in fire. On the throne room, a lot of times in the Scripture you'll see it has wheels. I'm not sure of the significance of that, but it's not unusual, and we have occasion to see it here. Notice, a river of fly, uh, fire is flowing uh, and coming out before him, that is, the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne. Thousands upon thousands are attending to him, in myriads and myriads of standing before him. And the, the court was set, and the books were open. Now watch it. Here is this uh, king that is so boastful and arrogant while in heaven, God says, okay, let's start setting up judgment here. Let's open the books and talk about this guy a little bit. Okay? Then it goes back to earthly events. See, that kingdom, that uh, reaction that we read about in heaven in verse 9 and 10 is set aside and we go back to the original thoughts on earth. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to uh, burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, they had dominion taken away, but not an, but had an extension of life was granted to them uh, for a appointed uh, period of time. Now, that introduces us to the judgment that's coming for the Antichrist. Now watch it. We now go right back to heaven. Notice what it says, verse 13 and verse 14. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, remember the previous heavenly scene, referencing God the Father. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, that all the people, the nations, the men of every language might serve him. That's the Son of Man. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the Son is involved in judgment, in this judgment, and when it's all over, everything that belonged uh, to this little horn is now part of the kingdom of God. Everybody with me? Now, that introduces us to the summary of what Daniel saw in his dream. Point. He is now going to tell us in more detail, the interpretation, all of that, because he starts asking questions of uh, angels that are standing around. Notice verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. 
<clears throat> now look up here. I'm sure he was distressed. This Antichrist that's coming is going to impact the whole world. He's going to be crushing and terrible, and that includes being crushing and terrible toward the nation of Israel. So he's concerned. I'm distressed. My spirit was distressed within me, and visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Observation. Here is a question, a first question that has several parts to it that Daniel asked uh, for uh, clarification. And when you get down to verse 19, he's going to ask a second question because he doesn't get enough information from his first one. Now, here it is. He wants to know what is going on. What is the exact meaning of all of this? Now, verse 7. Uh, yes, verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kingdoms, he's being told, who will rise up from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. So here is a simple summary statement of what all this means. This Antichrist is going to come. He's going to have absolute control. He's going to do what he wants. He's going to crush. He's going to be under the influence of Satan. But guess who wins in the end? The saints of God. Okay? Now, Daniel said, now, wait a minute. That doesn't help me a whole lot. That is a summary statement. Let me ask you a more specific question. And here it goes. We read about it uh, beginning uh, in uh, verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning, watch it, of the four beasts, which are different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth and iron and its claws of bronze, which devour and crush and trample down the remainder with its feet. I want to know about this more about this kingdom. Second part of the question. Notice what it says. And the meaning of the ten horns which are on its head. Second part of the question. Third part of the question. And the other horns which... <coughs> which came up before the three who fell, namely the horn that had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which are uh, larger in appearance than uh, its uh, associates. Now he's asking three questions. What is the fourth kingdom? Two, uh, what is the meaning of the ten horns? And three, he wants to know, what about this little horn? So it's a three-part question. He said, I want more information. Okay? Now, I've only got a couple of minutes, so I'll just highlight it for you because we're going to have, there is so much more here to see. But I want you to note that in verse 21, he starts getting an answer. I kept looking, and that horn which was waging war with the saints and overpowering them he was doing that until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One 
And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And he says, let me tell you something else. Thus he said, the fourth king will be the fourth kingdom on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Then another answer. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, the ten, uh, our ten kings will arise, and another one arise after them, and he will be different uh, from the previous ones and subdue three kings. Now, fourth kingdom, totally different. Ten horns, kings. Little horn, another king, that he subdues uh, the other kings in this kingdom. So Daniel's been given a little bit of information. There's more, but I'm out of time. So we're going to stop right there. Now, class, let me urge you. I've told you a lot of stuff, and I know I've gone fast enough that you probably didn't get down a whole lot of notes. But I would suggest that you go back and read this chapter because it is the most important one in the book of Daniel according uh, with reference to the prophecy. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had, and I pray that as we have gone through this section so rapidly, we'll still see the implications that are there uh, for the future, and uh, we'll learn and profit from them for our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.